Welcome to Faithful Economy, a podcast of the Association of Christian Economists. We host conversations about important economic and moral questions. I'm your host, Steve McMullen of Hope College. It is good to be back with another episode of the podcast. I had to take an extended break, but we now have a collection of interesting conversations ready to go. So you can look forward to regular episodes through the rest of the summer and going into the fall. If you're new to the podcast, please feel free to peruse the collection of episodes we released last year. We try to focus on conversations that will have lasting value, and there's a lot to absorb and learn from. Moving forward, we have a cluster of episodes dealing with economic justice, starting with the episode here today on criminal justice system, and then continuing through four more episodes with a variety of perspectives to be released in the coming weeks. This episode is an interview with Engina Chiteji, an associate professor of economics at NYU. She does research on wealth and savings, crime and inequality. She's on the editorial board of the Review of Black Political Economy and co-editor of a volume on wealth accumulation in communities of color. In it, we discuss criminal justice reform and mass incarceration, but we pay special attention to the invisible punishments that accompany an encounter with the justice system, including fines, debt, reductions in civil rights, and long-term labor market penalties. I appreciate Angina's careful scholarly approach to the topic. I learned a ton talking to her and reading her work. In our conversation, she shows a willingness to think broadly about what justice should look like and what that would mean for policy. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, and I'm sure you will too. Welcome, Angina. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited about the kinds of things we're going to be able to talk about, in part because criminal justice reform just is not a strength of mine. It's, one, it's something that I'm learning about a lot. And I think the whole country is also having a crash course uh, right now in some of the problems in our criminal justice system. And so this is a great time for us to think a little bit about this and to think a little bit theologically and Christianly about criminal justice. So I'm excited to have you here for this conversation. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Happy to be here. Let me start by thinking broadly before we start narrowing in on the specific work you have done. Uh, your recent work in particular focuses on economic impacts of the criminal justice system. And as we'll see here today in our conversation, it includes sometimes the hidden consequences of criminal justice policies. But I'd like to start by giving you what I think is kind of a four-point, possibly naive understanding of the case for thinking critically and carefully about cr- criminal justice reform. And I'd like, to, I'd like to hear you respond to see if this is, if this is fair and maybe to add to my summary. So my four points would go something like this. First, particularly in the war on drugs, uh, we've placed excessively harsh punishments for many crimes in the American system. Second, the resulting load in the criminal justice system is just really expensive for society. And third, uh, maybe three should come before two, really, the impact of incarceration on crime reduction is minimal, but the cost to those incarcerated, of course, is really high. And then fourth, there's a racial bias in the criminal justice system, and the system seems to be exacerbating racial disparities. I think the implication of these four points together is that we could craft a more just and more effective system at the same time, and that that reform would probably include some kind of decreased emphasis on harsh punishment and imprisonment, at least for some crimes. But that's, that's like my educated person at a distance summary of kind of what I've gathered. Your work pushes these arguments a lot deeper in some ways that we'll be able to talk about. But I'd like to hear you first 
tell me whether or not I'm missing anything important or whether you think that summary is, is a good one. Okay, so I'd say, I think the summary that you've given is broadly consistent with the conclusions drawn in the literature about the phenomenon that we call mass incarceration in the United States. So this phrase referring, of course, to the dramatic spike in the incarceration rate that we saw in the United States beginning around the late 1970s, early 1980s. So just maybe to give the reader some statistics, if we think about from the late 1970s to 2000, the incarceration rate in the United States tripled in that three decade period. And if you think about the number of people behind bars today, we're incarcerating over 2.1 million people. That's sort of like locking up everyone in the state of West Virginia or everyone in the state of Idaho, just to sort of like think about what 2.1 million people might actually look like. So I guess I'd say that what also deserves mention are a couple of other things. So if we think about the causes of mass incarceration or what most scholars will say helped cause this problem, there's also, we also saw an important shift in practices at the state level during the 80s and 90s, sort of beyond the war on drugs, which the war on drugs to a certain extent was a federal phenomenon. Of course, the federal government, when it declared the war on drugs, implemented incentives to get states to participate. But when you think about other things that might be contributing to our high incarceration rate in the United States, really, it's also important to look at some policies that states implemented during the time period that we're talking about. So for example, many states at this time introduced mandatory minimums, three strikes are out policies, increase in the amount of sentence that had to be served behind bars rather than on parole and the abolishment of parole. And so these changes meant people were spending longer amounts of time in confinement, confined behind bars at the state level too. And so I guess I'm throwing this out because I think people forget, I think in the United States, we sometimes forget that because of federalism, we have federal policies that may lead to people being incarcerated. And then we have state government policies that may lead to people being incarcerated. And really, if we think about the federal system, the federal system only houses about 12% of the prison population. So really the war on drugs that was a big deal at the federal level was certainly important in leading to the spike in the incarceration rate, but it isn't the only thing that mattered given that so many people in the United States are actually convicted on crimes that are state crimes. Um, and so then those state policies really matter too. And maybe just add a little, not to overload the audience with statistics, but just maybe some statistics to really hammer this home, point home. At the state level, drugs are only about 13% of offenses. So if you look at people who are behind bars in state prisons, it's really only about 13% that are drug related. So again, just recognizing that, although the war on drugs has captured the attention maybe of the press and of the general public, Really, if you wanna think about reducing the prison population in the United States and lowering the incarceration rate, there's also gonna to have to be a lot of thought put into the kinds of policies that were implemented at the state level during the 1980s and the 1990s. And I think that I'd like to add maybe one more point, one more point that actually is maybe like three smaller points. So I think it's also, there are also some interesting issues with respect to the balance of powers and how that changed during this time period when we had the spike in the incarceration rate. So what I mean here is that when, when state legislatures begin restricting the power of judges, so when you eliminate the judicial discretion by imposing mandatory minimums, where the judge essentially has to pick a sentence from a chart instead of being able to use discretion, um, and when you eliminate parole, if you're abolishing parole boards, you're actually changing sort of the balance of power in the criminal justice system. And John Path, who's a legal scholar, makes an important point here that that actually put more power into the hands of prosecutors. So we've sort of changed the balance of power that we normally 
had in state level governments, which is something Americans, you know, also have a deep tradition of caring about what we want separation of powers, but we also want balance across different branches of our governments. And so John Pfaff says, John Paff says, you really have to think about this rise in the power of prosecutors that ended up occurring because of the changes that were made and that we need to think deeply about prosecutorial discretion and the role that it played in mass incarceration. In fact, John Pfaff says, few people in the criminal justice system are as powerful or as central to prison growth as the prosecutor. So he says that in his book, Locked In, which was published in 2017. And with prosecutors, I guess maybe I'll say one more thing about why John Pfaff is so worried about this is that one of the points he makes in his book is he says that, well, if you think about how prosecutors are elected, they're elected at the state level, but they're often trying cases that involve people from urban areas. And so he just worries that it creates incentives for them to be too responsive to the whims of suburban voters and not concerned enough about the potential social costs for the urban communities of the people that the prosecutors are tending to send to prison. And so maybe one last point about prosecutors, why would this power of the prosecutors, like how can you really think about the power of the prosecutors and why is prosecutorial discretion something that John Pfaff is so focused on? He's saying, well, once prosecutors have sort of like more power than they used to have, then you can get perverse incentives. So for example, he says, prosecutors, this means that prosecutors are gonna be able to be thinking about when somebody comes before them, they can tell the person, well, the state legislature has written these mandatory minimum statutes and I could charge you with offense X, which has a five-year minimum, or I could charge you with offense Z, which has a 10-year minimum. And so John Pfaff is worried that prosecutors have been using that to sort of cop guilty pleas out of people or entice people into guilty pleas, whether the people are guilty or not, just because the changes that happened at the state level ended up putting so much more power into the hands of the prosecutor. So I guess the overall point I'm trying to make here is that one thing that your summary overlooked and that many Americans overlooked is how the balance of power changed when states made some of the changes they made and how at the end, we've ended up with a, situation, with a situation where it's possible to argue that prosecutors have too much discretion and that when we're thinking about reform, that may be something that citizens and governments need to be thinking about how to sort of like take away some of the power from the prosecutor. So maybe just a couple more helpful stats to really hammer home this point. So Rachel Barco, who's another scholar who has done a lot of research on the power of prosecutors, she notes that at the federal level, 97% of convictions come from plea deals. So if we, the average American citizen, think, well, whoever it is in prison, you know, they're in prison because a jury of their peers found them guilty. That's not really true. <laughs> and at the state level, she finds that pleas are responsible for 94% of the felony conviction. So really, this prosecutorial discretion seems to be an important issue that many Americans don't really know about or don't really see as being a key piece to the problem. That opens my eyes to a couple of things that, that frankly were not on my radar at all. For instance, I hadn't thought at all about electoral incentives, but of course, prosecutors are often elected and nobody runs as a prosecutor on a, I'm going to be easier on crime platform, right? And which means, which means all the incentives, because, because of the stories we tell about crime, and of course, the, the worst crimes are going to get the most press. That means all of the political incentives are pushing toward prosecutors leaning toward um, a more punitive system. And then, as you say, they're putting more power into their hands. And then, like these percentages these that you just ended with are, are staggering. So the, the normal experience with the criminal justice system for somebody who's incarcerated is not a jury trial. 
right. right? That that is actually a, a very small minority of cases. That is, is that right? Am I am I understanding the system correct? Yeah, that's that a, what Barco. That's the point that Barco, in fact, I, are trying to make. <laughs> yeah, that's that's and that we overlook it. That most Americans we aren't aware of it. And it's okay. been important. You know, I mean, obviously we don't pay people here to, to, to come on these conversations, but you've already earned your money, uh, metaphorically at least. But overall, though, it sounds to me like the move toward incarceration, the move toward uh, more serious punishments and more incarceration, as opposed to other forms of punishment, that, that seems to be a big theme at the state level and the federal level. Is that fair? Correct. Okay. All right. That's a great start. Let's use this now as a, as a chance to dig into some of your writing. Now, the, the two pieces that, that, I, that I tried to read carefully before this conversation were both peer-reviewed journal articles, one from Faith and Economics, of course, and then the other from the Re- Review of Black Political Economy. And I'll put links to both of these articles in the show notes, in addition to some of these other resources that you're citing here, so that folks can go and do more reading on their own after the, after the fact. In your Faith and Economics article from 2017 in particular, you describe what you call invisible punishments, which include uh, probably the long-term labor market costs of incarceration, the the expanding uh, fees and debt associated with any encounter with the criminal justice system. Uh, and, And I suppose you might also add the penalty of incarceration in terms of retirement savings and social security benefits. And, And this is the topic of your other article. And then maybe also limitations on eligibility for other government programs and benefits, such as food stamps, in some states, limitations to voting as well. Can you talk about these these intermediate but also long-term consequences that are imposed on people, many of which last well long after they leave uh, jail or prison? Sure. So maybe another one I'd add to the list, because I feel like it's getting a lot of attention in the present moment or over the past year or so. So for most Americans, I think another thing that might come to mind is probably the effect that having a prison record has on your ability to vote, right? And so this has gotten a lot of attention recently, partly because of recent efforts in states like Florida to restore voting rights to ex-offenders. So if we think about what happened in Florida in 2018, there was a referendum to restore voting rights to a ballot measure to restore voting rights to formerly incarcerated persons and 65% of voters approved it. But then the Florida governor and some other lawmakers in 2019 decided to introduce some restrictions to try to sort of undo what the referendum was trying to do. And then that ended up going through an appeals court. And back in, I think it was September of last year, the appeals court upheld the changes that the Florida governor and other legislators had made. This is an issue that seems to be getting a lot of attention about whether or not people should be able to vote if they were formally convicted of a felony. So this again is after they've been released. So I add that one. And then I guess to maybe add a little bit more information about some of the ones you mentioned. So if we think about the labor market penalties. So again, I've got some statistics, but I feel like, you know, your audience knows we're economists. So maybe I just feel like I should give people statistics just in case some people are worried about, well, you know, labor market penalties, how important can they possibly be? What's known? So I just draw out a number in terms of the labor market penalties So Bruce Western, for example, has estimated that if you have a prison record, that that is associated with a 30% reduction in your earnings. And then if you think about your likelihood of getting a job, your likelihood of obtaining employment, Deval Pager did some work that showed that having formerly been incarcerated reduces your probability of gaining employment by about 50%. So these labor market effects look really real and they look really sizable. So we definitely should be paying attention to them. Um, I guess what's less clear in the existing literature in case your readers are trying to think about what's the transmission process? How is it that the 
having a prison record is sort of like transmitting its effects on your labor market prospects. Because if you think about policy interventions, you actually need to know why it is the case that having the prison record matters so that you know where you can intervene. So in terms of the transmission mechanism, the literature has offered several mechanisms. It's less clear about how much each one matters, but let me just throw them out there so that the audience knows. So if we think about why having a prison record might affect your labor market prospects, stigma effects is one issue. Disconnection from pro-social job finding networks. So this here are the ideas that while you're in prison, you sort of lose contact with your people that you knew prior to prison. And so when you come out, you may not be connected to the types of people who could tell you about job openings. A third factor that people have pointed to is human capital deterioration that occurs while people are incarcerated. So if you're incarcerated for long periods of time, the skills you had may erode, or it may be the case that when you come out, the skills that you have are no longer useful in the labor market. And then maybe a fourth factor would be government licensing rules. So at state level, many many state governments have rules, licensing rules for different occupations, and often they bar formerly incarcerated persons from getting a license. And maybe I should also say that in terms of thinking about these types of effects, we often in the literature, these are often called collateral consequences of having been incarcerated. So for listeners who are interested, who are looking to do maybe more research of their own after hearing the podcast, if you see the phrase collateral consequences, that's another way of describing these invisible punishments. So the literature sort of splits. Some people use the term invisible punishments. Some people use the term collateral consequences. And so, as you mentioned, if we're thinking about other ones besides the ones I've just discussed, certainly barriers to eligibility for some public assistance programs, such as food stamps. Um, The literature has also documented health effects that being in prison has adverse consequences for people's health, even post-release, those sort of like health problems and linger for the rest of men's lives. And then spillover effects onto the family of the incarcerated person, particularly children, are another type of collateral consequence that the literature in general has been interested in. Now in terms of my work, you mentioned that my work has been, I've been really interested in sort of two things. So I've been really interested in these labor market penalties that other people have documented And in reading about their existence, I started to wonder, well, if you think that having a prison record is going to depress somebody's earnings or depress their likelihood of being able to get a job once they're released, I got interested in what that might mean for retirement savings, because I actually have done in another lifetime, (laughs) did a lot of work on retirement savings and wealth holdings that people have and asset ownership patterns. And so, um, as you mentioned, I have a paper in the Review of Black Political Economy that is looking at the effects that having previously been incarcerated has on the amount of wealth that people have accumulated by the midpoint of the life course. So I've got my analysis is of men who are in their late 40s, early 50s, so that midpoint of the life course where we normally expect them to have accumulated some wealth or some savings that they could use then for retirement. And I definitely see that formerly incarcerated men have very little savings. So maybe on average at the mean, $35,000 of wealth and at the median, zero for non-white formerly incarcerated men and about $600 for the median for all men, regardless of race. So it definitely looks like, well, we certainly know, like if you just look at the stats, the stats tell you that they have low wealth holdings. And then what my research was trying to do was trying to see, well, does the empirical evidence suggest that some of the reason that they might have those low wealth holdings is because of this fact that having been to prison then depress their earnings, which would then depress their ability to accumulate wealth. So, and then I guess the other thing I've been interested in, in the faith and economics paper in particular, been very interested in something called criminal justice debt. So this fact that when people leave prison, 
And I should say that if I lapse into saying men, most of this research focuses on men. So, <laughs> so a lot of the research reported is it has this kind of effect on men, blah, 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 blah. So sometimes we say men instead of people. Um, and I guess if there's extra time, we could talk about why most of the research has been on men and not women. But I just mm -hmm. want to say that for the audience that's listening. Okay, but back to the point. So I've also been very interested in what's called criminal justice debt. So this is sort of like a term that's used to describe the fact that for some people entering prison, because of fines and fees in particular that our court system imposes or fees that people may end up incurring as they're making their way through the court system and maybe having to pay for a public defender. If you thought public defenders were free in the United States, they're not free in all states. Um, so a person who ends up in prison while they were making their way through the court system, can there are a number of ways in which they can end up being charged for things that happen while they're going through the court process. And so if they don't pay off those charges before they go to prison, then those charges just sit there and they accumulate interest. And that ends up creating a situation where when the people leave prison, they have this thing that scholars like to call criminal justice debt, or sometimes some scholars call them legal financial obligations, but it's essentially debt that you have as a result of having participated in the system. And I've been very interested in that because then that's something that you're then carrying with you once you leave. So it's almost like you served your time, but you may still have this other form of debt that has to be paid because of the fact that in many states, the states are loving charges as somebody's making their way through the court system and through the trial process. And You know, I'll, I'll just say that a couple of things that I found interesting. Again, this part was, was really informative to me. One piece that I, that I found really interesting was first, you, you note the very high interest rates that are uh, on these debts. Uh, so that the amount of, of debt that is accumulated can be quite high. Uh, this isn't usually a, a market rate of, of interest compared to, to other kinds of debt. And then uh, second, that these debts could be imposed even if the person was innocent, so that the criminal justice system, at least in some states, uh, could be set up in, in such a way that someone who was perhaps already quite poor could be subject to you know, the worst year of their life in terms of having to you know, deal with, with the court system and the police, accused of something they didn't do, and then come out still owing a whole bunch of money as a result. And that struck me uh, perhaps as, as much as anything else in your paper as a kind of obvious injustice that we're probably gonna disproportionately impose on folks most likely to have kind of really bad experiences with the police. Is that a fair description of some of the, the, the other excruciating details of all of this? Yeah, so I think that's definitely a fair description. So again, maybe some numbers to help the reader. So if we think, or for the audience, sorry. So if we think about, this is actually criminal justice debt is also an interesting issue because it's sort of like a new issue that researchers have started to explore. And so we're still like discovering the statistics to sort of describe the lay of the land. And many of the studies that, that have present statistics, present them for particular states, individual states. But Alexis Harris has a great book called A Pound of Flesh, Monetary Sanctions as Punishment for the Poor. So she uses the term monetary sanctions to sort of describe this criminal justice debt, these fines and fees. And so she, in her book, tried to compile at least a little bit of information from every state in the country. And so drawing from that, from the information that she has in my Faith in Economics paper, I pulled the information that she was able to collect about different states and their interest rates. And so the interest rates are ranging from anywhere from 4% to say 12% interest on the criminal justice debt, which you were noting is lower than interest rates on other 
loans that most Americans would think about. And so, yeah, in my paper, I actually drew some information from the Federal Reserve Board about the typical interest rate on an automobile loan and the typical interest, yeah, the typical interest rate on an automobile loan in two different years. And those were maybe 6%, 4%, so much lower than the interest rate that the states are charging. And another thing that I find fascinating, I guess fascinating, but not in a good way, is that states also do, many states also have surcharges. So before you get to the interest, suppose, for example, we're in a state where there is a $100 fee imposed if you have, if you're charged with a felony. So that's just, they just impose that fee to everybody who's charged with a felony because they fit the state sort of maybe in their minds they're justifying it by, well, you're going to end up going through the court system. So we want to charge you $100 for taking up the court system time. Many states on top of that will then levy something called a surcharge. So Arizona, for example, has an 83% surcharge. So the surcharge is sort of just like the extra percent you have to pay on top of any fine or fee that has been levied, which when it's worded that way, like given that they worded that way, it sort of sounds a lot like a tax kind of you or I would think about, well, when we go to the grocery store, like maybe we have to pay $5 for a gallon of milk. And then there's like this markup that, but it's not 83% at the grocery store. So it's very interesting to me that states when they do, even before you get to the interest rate, the interest that people have to pay if they can't clear their debt before they go to jail, I think it's interesting to even think about like, the way the charges are structured before you get to the point where you might or might not have to pay interest. And so the surcharge thing is very interesting to me as an economist because it seems like a tax and it's certainly a higher tax rate than you see on most items, including sin taxes, right? Things that we normally call sin taxes in the United States, they don't typically end up being 83%. The interest rate is high, the surcharges, which we might think of as a tax, seem very high. And then of course, some Americans, depending upon how you feel about what's going on in the system now that you know, some people might object just to the fact that people even are being assessed charges for having a felony <laughs> and then a charge for maybe how much time you spend in jail and a charge for whether or not you use a public defender. Like some people may have the issue with those base charges too. But I feel like even if you don't have issue with those base charges, you might worry about these taxes and these high interest rates because that seems definitely to be unusually high compared to other taxes that we charge in the United States and other interest rates that are charged. And then as you noted, Steve, it's affecting a population that's already so disadvantaged that you just wonder how anyone thinks that they will ever be able to pay off all of these fines and fees and extra charges. Yeah, and disadvantaged in terms of their income and wealth perhaps beforehand, but definitely, as, as you documented here earlier, very much disadvantaged in terms of their ability to pay off any debt by earning large amounts of money after they're incarcerated, right? And so to come out both with severely diminished labor market opportunities, but then also have this kind of debt does seem like a double punishment uh, in, in a way that I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even thought to ask whether or not that sort of thing was a problem. I mean, I mean, broadly, we're talking about the justice system. So of course, there's some sense of justice that we have to bring to the table. And just noting that there's a really harsh set of punishments out there doesn't immediately mean that something is unjust. But there does seem to be like a number of different places in our conversation where we're, we're noting that the, the ways punishments are levied out, it's at least possible that some of these punishments are beyond what we would want if we were to examine them in a kind of dispassionate way or even uh, in a charitable way beyond the kind of punishments we'd, we'd impose ideally on, on folks that are, that are in the criminal justice system. But, but that's, that's difficult. Like to, to get into to that part of the conversation, we have to immediately move from a conversation about statistics and, and demographics and whatnot to a questions about 
what justice looks like. One of the things that I loved about your article in Faith and Economics was that you just spent a lot of time thinking through different ways in which we can think ethically about the phenomena that you had just raised. So that's my transition here. Let's examine some of these things that you, you bring to the table in that paper, uh, because I found it just really, really helpful as I tried to sort of walk through my own mind where I would pinpoint the injustice and the need for reform. First, in your faith and economics paper, you walk through a number of different ethical lenses, is one way of thinking about it, that we could use when thinking about criminal justice reform, and, uh, and in particular, these invisible punishments. Now, some of the lenses you offer come straight from the economics discipline, and so they might be familiar to, to those of us for whom economics is a native language, uh, including first Gary Becker's theory of efficient punishments, in which he makes a case, as you described, for uh, maybe a heavier use of fines and, uh, and a lighter use of incarceration. And then second, just the idea of vertical equity, comparing people across income levels. Can you talk about what these two concepts offer, but also I'd like to broadly invite you to think about what the economics discipline can help us with when we're trying to evaluate what a just criminal justice system would look like. What do we economists have to contribute? Mm, okay, so... I guess I might start by, so this question I'm torn on how to respond to it, because I guess when thinking about, I might start by just sort of thinking about my own motivation for doing the faith and economics paper is I feel like economists and other social scientists that were really, really good about documenting the existence of invisible punishments, but they, we weren't doing such a good job, maybe reflecting on the moral issues that might be involved. And I felt like ignoring moral implications could give the impression that there weren't any, and that this is sort of okay if we're just sort of writing as economists, well, here's what happens. And, you know, here's sort of like what it means for a state budget and just sort of like not talking also about whether there might be moral questions to be raised. I felt troubled by that. So I guess I'll start by saying that. So I do think it's important for, I guess I say that because I do think it's important for economists to be trying to try to look at moral issues. Now, I will also say though, that we need to have some humility because <laughs> we're not always good at discerning everything that's important, right? And so yes. that's why in my own attempt to try to like think about ethical, to try to view these invisible punishments through ethical lenses, I looked at to economics and then I tried to step outside economics and look at what other moral, what moral philosophers elsewhere have had to say, but maybe starting with Becker and vertical equity, since you did ask about those. So Becker, it's a famous paper. Like I always call it the famous 1968 paper, but I feel like your audience will laugh because I can't remember the title. Like I can just remember it. it's the famous 1968 paper. And off the top of my head, I can't give you the title, even though I guess we can maybe type it into some kind of provide some kind of internet link after the end of the podcast, because I, I do have it written down somewhere. We're scholars. So famous, all you need to know is the last name of the author and the year. I mean, that's I guess that's true, but Becker's written so much that that may not be enough to like. That's very true. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so what, how does Becker thinking about sort of like, what's the normative framework that he's using in his paper? So he actually was very interested in this paper. He was very interested in looking at fines and fees and maybe trying to determine, trying to determine first the optimal level of punishment. And then also trying to think about like, sort of what's the optimal balance between using a fine versus a fee. And so what he being a good economist is able to sort of the information that he's able to bring to the table or bring to a reader who is outside economics is he's noting that, well, it's important to maybe think about the fact that fines, in theory, should be a less costly way to punish people than incarcerating them is. Because if you incarcerate them, then you have to house, you have to house them in some kind of facility. You have to make sure that they you're in charge of 
making sure that they have meals, et cetera, et cetera. So Becker was saying, well, if you think about this from an economic standpoint and maybe the cost of different types, different ways you could punish people, Becker was certainly hypothesizing that using a fine would be lower cost. And so that society should think about that carefully and maybe use the fines to the point where the marginal benefit of the fine equals the marginal cost of the fine. Um, I will say the sort of one weakness to his reasoning is that it turns out, I mean, he wrote this in 1968, it turns out now that we're in the you know, 2020, even 2010s, once people started looking into the way the criminal justice debt that I talked about previously operated operates, people have noted that, well, fines, it turns out that if you're loving fines on people who are pretty poor, sometimes they can't pay the fine and then you have to like expend resources to issue a warrant and to send the police out to get them and bring them back to court and have another court hearing to find out why they didn't pay the fine and then, you know, are they indigent? So, you know, fines aren't as cheap, I guess, as Becker thought they would be. They're not as, as he thought he sort of assumed they would be almost zero cost. And the literature certainly suggests that fines actually are pretty costly in themselves in the way I guess they're implemented today. But it is interesting that Becker was able to say, well, if we're an economist, maybe what we could bring to the table is the idea of thinking about the cost of different forms of punishment and trying to determine what the optimal balance is between the two. Um, and then also trying to think about like, when you think about any type of punishment, what's the optimal amount of punishment you need to be thinking about the fact that punishing people is costly. And so you balance off the benefit, presumably deterring more crimes against the cost. And so that's a way of thinking that people outside economics might not have thought of before. If we think about the vertical equity framework, and this comes from work by Joel Slumrod, although I'm sure Slumrod would say he isn't the one who thought of the idea. It's just that in terms of what I've read, I've read a lot of Joel Slumrod's work, work with Len Berman in particular. And so this is in the public finance or the tax literature where when thinking about sort of the equity of a tax system, one principle that can be used is this idea of vertical equity where you're thinking about whether or not the tax is structured in a way where people have the most people who have the most resources will bear sort of a higher burden of paying taxes, right? So a progressive tax system, the kind of progressive income tax system that we have in the United States, presumably have because we have concerns about vertical equity. We want to make sure that the lower your income, a lower income person, in theory, isn't paying more than a higher income person. So if you take this kind of vertical equ vertical equity principle, you can use that as a framework to maybe think about the criminal justice debt and for me, or the invisible punishments. And for me, I guess it sort of makes me wonder about instances in which we have these sort of like fixed fees, no matter what the offender's economic background, you have to pay $100 if you're charged with a felony and you know something like that. It seems like that's not really structured so that the amount varies by the resources that the person has. So that would suggest that it might be concerning. So those are sort of two economic frameworks that have been used. I'd like to push the economics framework just a, a second longer to pose to you a follow-up question um, as I'm ruminating about this. It strikes me that economists might be particularly good at thinking about deterrence. Deterrence is, uh, it, it feels like the first law of demand, right? You're increasing the price and you get some behavioral response. But at the same time, thinking about an optimal or an efficient punishment in, in deterrence terms, doesn't necessarily lead us to justice the way normal people might think about it or, or the way um, philosophers have thought about it as, as giving a punishment that fits the crime in some sense. For, for example, I mean, you could imagine an extreme case, a very harsh punishment, even, even, a, even a death penalty or a really huge fine. You could imagine a calculation, a cost-benefit analysis in which just exorbitant fines end up being efficient if you have to levy a big fine to get the deterrent effect. 
even when the crime might be very, very small. And yet we wouldn't want life altering fines to be levied against for crimes that were very minor, a speeding ticket, you know, with a million dollar fine that leaves you in debt for the rest of your life. You know, and which, which is just to say that it's at least possible that economists will easily make a particular kind of error here. Right. Well, I mean, this is a weakness of, econ- of economics, right, is we're very concerned about efficient outcomes. And so we've picked that sort of moral norm as like the criterion to use to evaluate what's moral. I mean, we don't say we're evaluating what's morally correct because we, as a discipline, say we're being objective. But philosophers would say, well, you've picked a moral norm, efficiency, and then everything is just sort of like measured in terms of whether or not it's efficient or not. And then that's not the right criterion to be using. Yeah, there, there is a kind of clash of moral criteria in some sense. I think of efficiency as a moral criteria. It's not the best one, but it's one we economists are good at talking about when it's important. Uh, but there is a kind of clash of, of moral criteria here, and efficiency can, can certainly run up against um, the other norms that we would hope would guide the criminal justice system. Well, you can, you can comment on that, but I, but I also would like to dig into these other ways of, of looking at um, punishments. If you wanted to, to talk a bit about what you, what you found when you reached outside the economics discipline in, in philosophical circles, that would be great. We can also move to thinking about uh, Christian forgiveness. What's your preference there? Well, so if you don't mind, I would like to maybe say a little about what I found when I looked outside to what philosophers had to say, because that for me, that really hammered home the sort of weakness that we have as economists. So if I think, if I think in particular of Michael Sandel's work and in particular right. his book, What Money Can't Buy, I mean, he's written many things, but What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets really helped influence my thinking. And maybe in, even just in terms of making me realize that efficiency, that's a moral criterion that we've chosen to focus on in economics and there are other ways that we can be thinking about things. So maybe let me just say one or two things or give one or two examples of how thinking about things that Michael, that the philosopher Michael Sandel points out as sort of like way lenses, ethical lenses or moral lenses that might be used to view things, how that might lead us to raise some interesting questions about invisible punishments. So again, so Michael Sandel, he's not writing about invisible punishments. He's writing just about other things. Well, he's writing about sort of the marketization of everything. Like he's sort of concerned that markets have spread, market-oriented thinking has spread into too many domains in US society where it doesn't belong. And so then he's trying to get society to think about what it really means to be introducing market logic into domains where it didn't exist previously. But again, he didn't use the criminal justice system as an example, but his book certainly made me start thinking about how we might have introduced it into the criminal justice system and that that may be leading to some of the, some perverse outcomes. And so one thing, one example that Sandel gives in talking about the spread of market norms into non-market domains is he gives an example of Congress. So it used to be the case. I mean, it's still the case. So Congress, well, actually, it's probably not still the case, I guess, after (laughs) I should, let me just tell the audience what I'm talking about. And then you can see why I'm saying, oh, maybe it's not still the case anymore. But it used to be the case that regular citizens could line up in order to gain entry to a hearing. So it used to be the case that hearings that Congress held about different issues were public and we we the people could line up and if we wanted to go into the hearing and see what our legislators were saying as they were debating the issues. And so Sandel was concerned about the fact that, I guess he's writing, he wrote his book in two, it's published in 2013. So I think he's observing that maybe by sort of the late nineties and the 2000s that all of a sudden this industry emerged where people, corporations would hire, I guess it's not an industry, but you might call it an industry, so, but corporations would hire people to stand in line so that the lobbyists could eventually get the seat. And so Sandel thought, well, this is introducing market principles, right? Because now you're 
paying people to stay in line. And instead of having something that he would call the ethics of the queue govern who's going to get a seat, it's the ethics of the market. So the ethics of the queue is sort of like, well, all of us citizens, we can stand in line and you wait your turn and you get in based on the fact that you waited in line. If you have a system where lobbyists pay somebody else to wait in line for them, and lobbyists also happen to have a lot of money, so they're probably gonna be able to hire a lot of people to wait in line, and they end up getting all the seats for that reason because they have money, Sandel thinks that's an example of having the spread of market norms into a non-market domain. And he says, that should make you think about Congress. Does Congress, is Congress then transformed from something that is for the people, for the average citizen, and then transformed into something that is for only people who are wealthy enough to be able to have somebody pay somebody to stand in line for them. So Sandel calls this a type of corruption of a good, corruption in the sense of degradation. It's not talking about corruption in the sense of political corruption and government officials taking bribes. It's more about, we have this good, this public good, this civic good, and it's being tainted because you introduce market norms into the process of allocating the seats. So I found that really interesting because it just made me wonder if we think about then these court fees that are imposed. So the proponents of court fees will say, well, this is like, like having fee for service, right? So fee for service, you use a court system, you should pay a fee for using the court system. If you have to go through, if you're going through a trial, then you're using up the court's time and why shouldn't we impose a fee? And wouldn't that somehow be efficient because it's using market norms to govern the process. But for me, I feel like if you think about the way Sandel talks about the way that introducing market norms into certain domains may corrupt the good, then I start to think, well, does this mean it's sort of like tainting the criminal justice system in some way and transforming the way we think about the criminal justice system? If we're all funding it out of our tax dollars and it feels like it belongs to all of us, we all maybe have an incentive to ask questions about it, particularly if our taxes have to go up because the system is expanding. But if instead you're financing it off the backs of people that you're ultimately who may ultimately end up in prison. It's like a smaller subset of people is paying to maintain the institution. And it seems like it's sort of like distorting the way that the institution actually works. So I found that sort of Sandel's philosophical work really helpful for forcing me as an economist who was used to thinking about things in a certain way to begin to think about things a little bit differently. You know, I think that's a really powerful example. If, if only because one of the kind of foundational norms of our justice system has to be equality before the law. And particularly for, for the American founders, equality before the law meant, at the time, equality for rich and poor. That we wanted a justice system in which the rich were not able to buy their way into a different justice system than the poor. And this is, this is one of the norms that animates the, the trial uh, by a jury of one's peers for, for substantial crimes, at least. But it, it, does, it does strike me immediately that if, if the criminal justice system, if any encounter with the criminal justice system is an expensive one for both, for, for anyone any, on either side of, of a lawsuit or, or a criminal proceeding, that means that those who are poor are going to be less able to take advantage of the criminal justice system to right wrongs than those who are rich. And of course, this is always going to be true in terms of you know, privately paid lawyers who are, who are very good at their work. But there does, there does strike me immediately as a potential, at least, for a real perversion of justice there. Well, let's, let's talk about forgiveness. I thought this was one of the most provocative parts of your paper. You have an extended discussion of Christian forgiveness in relation to criminal justice reform. Uh, you build, in particular, on the work of Nicholas Waltersdorf, and you argue that a commitment to forgiveness as an ethical ideal should preclude, or should at least give us pause, when we think about the lifelong invisible punishments that you're particularly concerned with about in this paper and in our, in our conversation here. 
Now, I got to tell you, I think this is a, a difficult argument to make, not because I think it's wrong, but because just pulling the pieces together in a tight way is, is difficult. Let me, let me explain. One, one difficulty thinking about forgiveness in the criminal justice system is that we tend to think of forgiveness as an individual obligation. So if somebody wrongs me, I might have an obligation to forgive them. Certainly, Jesus seemed to think so. And we don't think of it as applicable to the administration of justice. We often think about justice and mercy, even in some sense, being at odds with one another, even if that can't be true in an ultimate sense. So tell me how, how you'd resolve this tension. How do you think about applying a norm of forgiveness when we're talking about something that's public, like the criminal justice system? So I think that's a really hard question, and I think it's a good question. And yeah, so I'm not sure I have a strong argument. I mean, I feel like I try to make an argument in the paper um, and I'll try to explain to the audience, but you know, it has potential weaknesses. So I guess the way I think about it is sort of drawing not just on the Christian philosophy, but then also thinking about Martha Nussbaum, who's another philosopher who has written a book called Anger and Forgiveness. And in her book, she was noting that if you think about society's legal institutions, they really express the sentiment of the people. And so for me, I get that as a Christian, the Bible is really speaking to me and in some sense how I should behave as an individual. But I also feel like Americans are often saying, well, we live in a Christian society or we live in a society that's heavily influenced by Christian values. So it just feels like it's hard for me to see how we can say, well, this only matters in my personal life and it doesn't matter for the institutions that we have in our society. So this is where I admit that it's a weak argument, right? Because if I think about an immediate rebuttal, somebody might say, well, everyone in the United States is not a Christian. So what if there's somebody with a different faith tradition? And how do you know that their faith tradition places the same kind of emphasis on forgiveness that Christian tradition does? And I guess I would have to admit that I don't know that it does. Um, but I was writing more from a Christian perspective. And I guess what would I like to see? And, and how do I think that people who say that they're, whether they say that they're committed Christians 100% of the time, or whether they say that they're somewhat influenced by Christianity, how should they be thinking and about it? And so like, as I reflect upon your question, like maybe the best I can do is say, maybe what I'm offering is a call for people who say that their values are influenced at least somewhat by Christianity. Maybe it's like a wake up call to them. Well, maybe you should be thinking then about the system and whether the system has enough forgiveness built into it to satisfy you. And then presumably that affects who you vote for and what you will or will not tolerate. Yeah, so I don't know that I've answered your question well because I think that you've pointed out a good weakness. Well, let me let me turn around and offer, in addition to what you've said, which I think is a legitimate argument. I mean, uh, our institutions really are, particularly in a democratic in a democratic country, our institutions are a reflection of the public will, and so it's fair to say that the moral impulses of the people should be reflected in those institutions. And furthermore, Christianity has something to say about those moral impulses. Um, I think that actually comes through in your paper quite well. I could add another layer, and you could say that, that Christian morality, if it's true, says something about the way human beings should be and the way we should relate to one another, and that those norms apply whether we're Christians or not, either, right? That, that the, the Christian norms should reflect something about what justice should look like. And if Christianity has a long tradition of pushing back against excessive punitive um, responses to to crime, and I, and I think you can make that case pretty strongly in the Old and the New Testament. Well, then that should give us pause as Christians if we if we say something like mercy and forgiveness don't apply to the criminal justice system. There's some Christian warning bells that should be going off in our heads at least. But I can't make the argument super tight either. 
Um, but I but I do think that it, that's an important argument to to bring our Christian uh, impulse to forgiveness, the the ethical impulse to bear when we're thinking about how we want to craft a system. I think maybe if I could add one more thing, like so I'm going to make a plug for another book that I've Good. now has become one of my new favorites. So Anthony Bradley, who is a religious studies scholar at the King's College here in New York City, has actually written an interesting book called Ending Overcriminalization and Mass Incarceration, Hope from Civil Society. And what's interesting about his book is since he's, he's a religious studies scholar, he actually is, his book is trying to call for people to recognize the need to be thinking about human dignity and human flourishing and other things that religious people, people of all forms of faith have cared about, to be thinking about that as we're thinking about how we want to craft our criminal justice system. Like he's really concerned that the reform movement right now is really focused on the state, the state, not like the state of Alabama versus the state of Ohio, but the state is in a euphemism for government and a political institution. He's worried that the focus is too much on the state and the state's power and that we're, we really can't solve the problem unless we start thinking about the person and he means the person in two ways. So he's drawing on personalism, philosophy of personalism, which I'm not an expert on, but I'm learning a lot. I've learned a lot by reading his book, but he'd say two things. Like he thinks we need to have our focus on the person who's being affected by the criminal justice system and trying to make that person in our community whole. And then we also need to focus on we as individuals, like having more respect for the notion of human dignity so that we're not just sort of like turning aside and saying, well, the criminal justice system doesn't affect me. I'm not ever going to commit a crime. So, so be it, I don't care what happens there. So I feel like Bradley, because he's at a Christian-based school and he's a religious studies scholar, that he's thinking about this in ways that can really push the envelope in terms of the way that people have typically thought about these issues and could be really like something that would interest a lot of people who are of Christian faith or of any faith to be sort of thinking about like bringing in more of a faith perspective. Like he's explicitly saying, I'm trying to bring in a faith perspective, even though I know, you know, in the U.S. that people don't want to talk about faith. He's like, he feels like you can't really get around it. You got to start thinking about what we think about human dignity and human flourishing and that that has to be a part of any solution if we want the solution to actually be effective. I appreciate that. And I, I think I should look that up. I'm I'm familiar with Bradley's work. I have not looked at this book, but it does look it does look really rich. You know, we've been talking for a while here, but let me ask you two more. And the first is is really kind of an indulgent question. And that is because I've been reading about distributive justice for now for the last year and a half or so for my own research. And I've, and I've been a long sort of participant in conversations about, about Christian and, and in particular biblical questions of justice. Let me pose this one to you as a, as a way of thinking about criminal justice reform. The description that you give us includes this parallel between Christian forgiveness in the, tradition, in the Christian tradition, but also debt forgiveness more generally. And it made me think immediately about the Old Testament Jubilee and Sabbath laws in, in Deuteronomy, in which debts were forgiven and slaves returned to their families on a seven or a 50-year cycle. And I've, I've sometimes heard scholars explain these kinds of Old Testament law in terms of a, a kind of bankrupt, bankruptcy law, alternatively, as a way of, of ensuring access to basic requirements of participation in the economy, that is just making sure nobody's excluded or alternatively, a kind of early social safety net in some cases. Uh, to me, they point us toward a system in which the, the rule is just that nobody's locked out of economic life. And in the ancient world, that meant access to land and some autonomy in your family. But we want to have an economy that gives young people real opportunities, which is one of the reasons why we provide education and we invest a lot in education. But I, it strikes me that it's also a, just a, a first 
principle of basic economic opportunity ought to be that a, a person shouldn't be permanently excluded from the economy unless their crime really warrants it. But everything that you've been talking about in terms of these hidden punishments points us toward a system that we've built, perhaps unintentionally, that excludes people from economic life in a real serious way after, to use the popular phrase, after they've already paid their debt to society in some sense. So do, do you think that this kind of economic opportunity lens it would is a good way of thinking about how we might craft policy or think about policy in the criminal justice system. So I kind of have two responses because I feel like I hear what you're saying about being an economic opportunity lens, but part of what I'm hearing is I also feel like I just can't get over how much forgiveness seems to be implicitly worked there because I feel like you know we're what we're essentially talking about is this idea that the community is focused on making sure the ex-offender has what they need to go forward after they've served their time. And that really does sort of speak to this sort of forgiveness impulse. But yeah. um, so I guess I wanted to point that out because in hearing you talk about this, it also makes me think of my favorite story in the Bible, which is the prodigal son story, which is why it's part of the title. But, you know, just in that story, there's this notion that the ki kid who returned, he's welcomed with the feast and there's nobody saying, well, you've already used up your resources, so we don't have more resources to expend upon you kind of thing, you know, which I worry is part of why we are where we are in the United States. Like I worry that some of it, I mean, I guess that's a tangent, but I do worry that some of it is that even sometimes when people do know about things that are problematic, they're like, well, I don't want to have to pay higher taxes because that's going to cut into what I can afford to buy for me. And I guess that could lead us off into a huge digression about Kavanaugh's book and being consumed and whether like as Americans we're too concerned with having consumer goods and we don't really want to go there. But so I guess, let me just say the point I really like about that is just this idea that the community would be focused on making sure the ex-offender has what they need to go forward. So I do like that and think that opportunity, thinking about opportunity and providing opportunities is maybe a good way to be thinking in terms of reforms that people might want to implement. I guess I don't have anything specific. I mean, I really like it as an idea that opportunity focused thinking and maybe like maybe that would also help us with creating a situation where we don't have we might be perhaps we'd be able to cut the number of people who end up traveling off on an antisocial path or what we might call an antisocial path like you sort of mentioned that we do spend a lot on education in the united states but some people could reasonably argue that we could spend more and we could spend more in certain communities and maybe if we did that then some youth wouldn't feel so disengaged or disconnected from society that they're easily lured into behaviors that then may or may not end up getting them some kind of contact with the criminal justice system. So I do think that there's an argument to be made that we could have some kind of opportunity-oriented policy thinking that would help. But I don't know, did you want me to try to think of some specific examples? Like, I'm not sure. No, um, no there's no obligations for you to come up with anything in particular. I, it, it, it struck me only that, that your emphasis on forgiveness it, it made me, particularly because of the way the Old Testament laws function, it struck me that this kind of, that economic opportunity might require us to have some kind of forgiveness-like structures built in just to prevent mistakes or legitimately bad choices or horrific choices in some cases don't involve permanent consequences and permanent exclusion from the community. And, may, and maybe this is a lesson about the nature of economic opportunity. There needs to be some kind of paths built through our institutions that give people ways to get plugged into the economy again. That has a kind of intuitive sense to me, um, but I, I would have to think about it some more. Listeners may be saying, well, isn't that why we have sort of job retraining programs? And, you know, I mean, we do try to do this in the United States with job retraining programs for ex-offenders and maybe housing programs when people are released. Sometimes they can be released into, a, released into a situation where there's housing provided for them. But I think most people would say we probably don't do enough in the U.S. 
Um, mm-hmm. And again, I guess partly like this might take us off on a tangent too, but I mean, if I think about any kind of public programs or social programs we have in the US, we sort of have this, you know, we seem like we're torn in the United States. We have this notion that you're an individual, you should be able to make it on your own versus we have communitarian impulses where we should help each other. And it feels like we're somewhat stingy with the programs that we do have, perhaps because we're, we can't get over this impulse that people should have to do it on their own. But I do think that if there's a listener thinking, well, we already do this, we have some job training programs and other programs. I think that most people who do research on those programs would tell you they aren't really well funded. So it's very hard sometimes for ex-offenders to get placement into the programs. And so it isn't really, to the extent that we already do it, it is, we aren't really doing enough to create opportunities. And then certainly, of course, we talked about all those like discussion of labor market penalties, like state licensing provisions that prevent people from going into certain occupations. So there's even a sense in which we don't do enough to provide opportunities. We have these strict barriers. Yeah. And I mean, going back to one of the statistics you started out with, which is just striking, was just the high rates of unemployment among previously incarcerated people. He wasn't, or sorry, she wasn't looking. I mean, there are data, I don't have those data handy. There are data about how many ex-offenders have jobs and how many don't. But the Pager study was a random experiment type study trying to look at if we if you have a prison record, is your likelihood of being able to, being called back for an interview more specifically, okay. is your likelihood of being called back for an interview lower than somebody who has similar characteristics but doesn't have a prison record? And so it's about the probability of getting a job, not about sort of like the numbers of people who do or do not. I mean, even that probability will ultimately translate into the actual numbers. It was a 50% reduction in your chance of gaining employment because of having a prison record. Okay. So there is, so we know at, at minimum that there, there might be programs supporting reentry into the job market, but at minimum, those programs are balanced out um, and maybe overwhelmed by some other really substantial barriers to getting back into the job market that are already in place in the labor market. Right. Some legal and perhaps some just in terms of people's, you know, in terms of stigma or in terms of decisions of employers might be human capital, right? All of those things probably come together. Uh, Well, all right, we've been talking a while. So let me end. You've already given us just so many reading recommendations. But let me finish by asking you what you've read that perhaps you haven't mentioned, or maybe something you have mentioned that you'd like to highlight for us that has really helped you in your thinking. And it could be something for maybe maybe you could signal, right, whether or not you're giving us something that would be really useful for someone new on the topic versus something maybe that's just either very technical or broadly formative for, for your thinking in, in philosophical or in theological terms. Okay, so I probably have, I think I have mentioned almost everything, at least in passing, although one book that I have not mentioned, which would be a good one for somebody trying to get an introduction to all of these issues, is the National Research Council's 2014 report called The Growth of Incarceration in the United States, Exploring Causes and Consequences. So it's edited by Bruce Western, Jeremy Travis and Steve Redburn, who are both really heavyweights on their own in terms of individual writing about collateral consequences, but they came together to help lead a panel that created this book. And so that would give a reader a good overview of all the different collateral consequences, also a good overview of the criminal justice system, its different parts and how we got to where we are. So that's definitely for somebody new to the issue. You could read that and it's very readable. And then I guess also for somebody new, I think the Bradley book is also good for somebody new because Bradley, because he's trying to turn the conversation into a direction where we focus more on human dignity and human flourishing and potentially the role of civil society in solving problems. He actually does a good job sort of explaining in layman's terms where we are, how we got here, what, you know, what the scholars are arguing in terms of how we got here so that he sort of can lay the ground for how is everybody thinking about this now and how is what I want to say different. So that's another one that's good for the average person. 
maybe a book that I did mention that isn't really about the criminal justice system, two books. So, I mean, I think, you know, I love these books. Joshua Green's Moral Tribes and Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Because for me, as an economist who's very interested in policy, I can't help thinking that it's going to be hard to get public policy changes unless economists spend more time thinking about how it is that regular people think about policy and politics. And I feel like both Haidt and Green do a good job sort of explaining, offering good arguments about how American voters think, you know, and how we may be sort of like separating ourselves into tribes based on certain moral norms or certain viewing political issues through certain moral lenses. And I just feel like, like this would certainly not be for somebody who's wants an introduction to the issue, but for somebody who wants a new way for thinking about the issues, I feel like reading those texts helps you to think about well, who is it is who, it, who is it that you're actually trying to talk to if you want to make policy recommendations and how might knowing how people think sh- change the way you try to talk about policies and even craft policies. So again, I admit they're out there, but I feel like they actually are very helpful for anyone interested in public policy and really thinking seriously about how to have some kind of influence in policy debates. Mm-hmm. I will stop there because I have talked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that is uh, a wealth of recommendations and I'll put these all in the notes. And I think this is a great place to end. So thank you again, Angina, so much for talking with me today. This has been a great conversation. All right. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That is our show for today. Again, I am Stephen McMullen of Hope College and editor of the journal Faith and Economics. If you have any comments or questions, I would love to hear from you. You can always email me at podcast at christianeconomist.org. Remember to subscribe or follow us so you can see new episodes as we release them and to rate us on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find this show. For those interested in supporting the show, we welcome monetary donations. Just go to anchor.fm slash faithful economy and click on the button that says support. 100% of donations go toward the programming of the Association of Christian Economists. No one associated with ACE is paid a dime, and donations are all tax deductible. Faithful Economy is a program of the Association of Christian Economists and the journal Faith and Economics. You can find out more about the association and the journal at christianeconomists.org, and you can follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn.